0: Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Uh, Technology influences our politics hugely today, but it actually always has. This cell phone, for example, the movies that it can make could contribute to an entire change in the way we look at a police investigation or what we do about a building that fell down where we have videography taken with a cell phone telling us what happened. But technology has for many decades, for more than a hundred years, been of huge consequence in media and therefore in the politics that result from that coverage. Today I'm talking to an extraordinarily interesting man. He is Frank Romano of the uh, Museum of Printing in Haverhill, Massachusetts. Frank, welcome to the broadcast. You are an expert on printing as it was, printing as I knew it in many of the decades I spent in the newspaper business, printing that comes under the two headings of either letterpress or hot type. Take us away into the world of hot type and yesteryear. Behind you is the most significant machine of that era, the linotype. What is the origin of the linotype and how did it revolutionize newspapering?
1: Well, from the invention of of movable type in 1450, if you will, um, we had to select one character at a time, assemble the characters into a line, justify the line to the left and right hand margins, and do that over and over again, upside down and backwards. And so as newspapers grew after the Civil War, there was a phenomenal need for a way to mechanize that. And newspapers were offering tremendous rewards to anyone that could come up with machines that could do what people were doing. At that time, one of the first unions in the United States was the International Typographical Union, which was the union of the people who set type for newspapers.
0: And not only did they have to find the right character, they also had to put it back in the right place, so they had to do the job twice. That's right, and because
1: the characters were somewhat similar, you had to watch your P's and Q's. So. As, as we saw, the development of machines came about after the Civil War. There were many patents filed, very few machines that worked until 1886, when Ottmar Mergenthaler, a German immigrant, um, creates a machine, has the right investors, who are mostly newspaper people. By the way, one of them was Stilson Hutchins, the founder of the Washington Post, um, and, and many others. And so by 1886, you get the first linotype machine-setting newspapers. Um, the machine gets improved by 1900, uh, and after 1900, there's no newspaper left that is handset type. They're all mechanized uh, devices. And the linotype machine, to this day, is now in museums, where one of the few that has a working linotype because there are
0: 10,000 parts. Now, what the linotype did was it used metal, we called it metal, you called it metal, which was lead plus other substances, and it was very hot, hence the hot type, 550 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's in a pot, actually literally a pot, electrically heated on the machine. Originally they were gassed and they
1: became electric. Um, it's, we call it type metal because it's lead and tin and antimony. Um, we're very careful never to say lead here because the insurance company gets very nervous. Uh, so type metal. Um, And you would assemble a line of these small brass units called matrices. They were molds for every letter. And then you would force the molten metal into the line of matrices, and out would come a slug, a
0: line of type. That's how the machine got named. And that's what you would print from. Well, I can tell you, having worked on many large newspapers, the Herald Tribune in New York Washington Post, among those, that you'd have a whole line of these with men sitting there working these amazing things, moving the 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 what you call them the the magazines, moving up and down with the different types, and this clicking sound as the completed completed slug came down into a tray, which was carried away by the compositor, also known as the printer. Some um, uh, uh, change of words depending on which newspaper, which part of the country you're in. Uh, And that was the page. But what was interesting was, although this may sound enormously cumbersome, and it was in a way, it was an industrial operation. Uh, It was a factory that made newspapers in the middle of the night, primarily, not always, depending on afternoon papers, I worked on those too. Uh, And yet it was done very quickly. I'm told that at the Washington Post, when the computers started setting the type, it actually uh, affected the deadlines adversely. They could set it quicker, now they probably sped that up again, but the old mechanical way with a hot type was faster. Shall we Shall we take people through how a newspaper was made? Obviously the writers, on typewriters, which came in about, you've got a typewriter museum here as well as a, a printing museum, typewriters came in about the same time as the linotype, didn't they? That's correct.
1: The, the, the original Scholes uh, typewriter came in 1872, but the Remington Company made it a su- success and that was in the 1880s. Um, by the way, many of the daily newspapers in big cities had over a hundred of these machines, uh, because don't forget they were not only setting all the text for the articles, they were setting all the ads as well. Uh, eventually, uh, advertising agencies would set the type and have things called mats made for them. But originally newspapers set all that type. So they essentially would look at all the ads for an issue and they would then place them on pages when they did a a layout and they would then create what we know as the news hole. In other words, what was left after all the ads went in and that determined how many pages there were, that's what you would then fill up with news.
0: But going going back, this technology uh, was driven by all of the progress that was going on, but not the least by general education. More people were being educated. More people wanted something to read. General education, the idea that people should be educated was really an idea that came about (coughs) in in the 1840s, and a huge burgeoning of literate people was the consequence and they wanted something to read, and they wanted books, and they wanted the typeset fast. but it had a political significance because it was easier to start and operate a newspaper. How many newspapers were there in New York City in the 1920s?
1: There were 26 daily newspapers. I know that because uh, there was a strike in the uh, 19—pressman strike— and the 13 evening papers banded together and had their logos on, on one newspaper that they were able to put together and print in New Jersey. Uh-huh. And that's because there was no competition for your attention. There was no radio, no television, no internet. So reading was very important. So you, you saw the growth of the, not only the book market, the newspaper market, but the magazine market as well. Anything where people could consume information by reading. The Linotype helped that because it could put words into
0: print very quickly. I've always thought that the may be the great time for newspapers and for magazines. Well, newspapers probably after the Second World War for various reasons, and we can get into that. But magazines, especially in the 1920s and 30s, when so many of the great magazines started or flourished, The New Yorker, The Reader's Digest, Time, Life, uh, uh, Look, uh, these were the magazines that were so successful. There was so much a and they were true in other countries, too. In South Africa, it was the Outspan, which was hugely popular. And uh, then, of course, in England, there was Picture Post and many other magazines. In England and France, there were magazines, some of which are vaguely going today. But along came television. First came radio mm-hmm. and started sucking the ads. It was cheaper, it had a lot of penetration, it had an impact, and then suddenly you had television and everything changed. Would you like to tell us how that came and how it changed newspapers?
1: It's, it's, you have to follow the advertising. If you look at the advertising dollar, that determines everything. And so when radio came along, there were actually ads in printing magazines that were anti-radio because advertising dollars were going that way. Uh, then when television comes in, we, we, we got our first TV in 1948 in New York City. Um, and by the 1950s, advertising dollars were moving away from newspapers. They actually tracked the decline of newspapers from 1952, when advertising dollars started to show some appreciable growth in the television marketplace. And then you have to come to the 1990s when the Internet comes along, and all three of those things were
0: sapping dollars away from print, and more into electronic or other media. But there also was something else that happened. Television destroyed the evening paper. In every city in the world, practically, the big paper was the evening paper, because people would come home and read the paper. And then they started listening to radio, but then came television. And the evening papers began a steady decline and essentially have disappeared. Uh, And morning papers flourished, some of which became very important indeed. So much so that in the 1990s, right, uh, newspapers were selling for huge multiples. And suddenly the advertising drained away. It went to the
1: Internet. Yes, Uh, and that was the major change. I remember as I was consulting for newspapers, uh, I did a lot of the work on them converting from this machine to photographic typesetting, or cold type they called it and then uh, computerizing the the, uh, editorial area, where instead of typing on typewriters, they typed on terminals that were connected into computer systems that did a lot of the work that was done by typesetting people before that. Uh, These were major changes. As technology was changing the paper, it also was changing the way we were creating the information, which meant that eventually we
0: didn't need to print it. We could put it in electronic form. And it gave us the 24-hour news cycle. We always had a remarkably tight news cycle because of afternoon papers, which got the news and got it out quite fast, but nothing like what we have today. Uh, and there was no way that newspapers couldn't compete with a perishable product, uh, product news and something that essentially was made in a factory and had to be delivered, often by a nine-year-old child. The weak link was probably a kid throwing it on the doorstep. Uh, where do we go from here? Uh, Well, I think, again, at the height, there were just under
1: 2,000 daily newspapers in America and about 9,000 weekly newspapers in America. There were some called shoppers. They only had ads in them, so we don't kind of consider them as newspapers. Uh, Today, there are about 600 dailies left um, and about 3,000 weeklies. That number keeps changing. Um, I was with some people the other day from Cape Cod the, the residents of cape cod actually pay to keep their newspaper in business because they want a a, a newspaper um, i don't know how many communities will continue to do that but now we have competition for news we have television we have uh, the internet we have the 24-hour news cycle you have many different channels that you can choose by the way it's very interesting to look at the sniping between MSNBC and CNN and Fox as they snipe at one another. And it reminds me of the ninth, early 1900s when Hearst and Pulitzer and Bennett were sniping at one another in their newspapers in New York City. So it's kind of repeating itself, if you will.
0: Oh, well, some of the newspaper wars were extraordinary. Yes. I mean, you could, you could get insurance if you were knocked down by a car while you were carrying a particular newspaper. There were all sorts of gimmicks to sell newspapers, but one of which, which is, I think, of interest, it is to me, is why some newspapers have the news displayed vertically and some horizontally. And the vertical was when you had uh, nine, or t- was it 10 columns on a page. Uh, to get as many of those sitting on the streets, in primarily in New York, which is where it all emanated from, uh, that you might see a story there that interested you, and you might buy that paper instead of this paper. Uh, and then along came another innovation, Bodoni Bold, a type sister, a type face, uh, and somebody, I don't know who it was, you all know, but I saw it first in America at the Herald Tribune in New York, which had always been a leader, the, originally the Tribune, just the Tribune and then the Herald Tribune, a technological and journalistic leader. Uh, horizontal makeup, several columns with a long headline across them. When did that come in? Uh, 19,
1: late 1940s, early 1950s. You and, it it. and it was
0: considered revolutionary. It was. We hardly notice it now. Well, one of the people who did that was Edmund C, Edmund C.
1: Arnold. He was a very famous newspaper designer, and he was the advertising manager for the Linotype Company. And I worked for him. And he came up with a lot of these new concepts on how a newspaper should be laid out. And he did that for many newspapers across America. And he would use, I was in the advertising department at Mergenthal at the time, and so he would use us to do some of the work for him. So I got to work on many of those newspapers across America. And horizontal
0: makeup was appearing in other parts of the world.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, so I was not of spreading here. it
0: out. No, the concept didn't originate here at all. But it, it was really perfected, I think. In, in New York at the Herald Tribune. Yes, and don't forget that was
1: the combination of two newspapers. The Herald and the Tribune were two very strong papers. The Tribune was the first paper to use the linotype in 1886, and the Herald was the Bennett paper. And we still know
0: that by Herald Square in New York City. Tell us your story, Frank, before we talk about the machines in this room and in other rooms, tell us your story. Um, in
1: 1959, I graduated high school and I needed a job so I went to my guidance counselor, and he said, well, I know of two. One is at a pharmaceutical company, the other is at Mergenthal. I said, what do they do? He said, something to do with newspapers. And uh, so I said, that sounds interesting. And so I started in the, uh, the shipping department. I packed up matrices for Linocyte machines. And then I got promoted to the, ready- <laughs> to the mail room. That was a promotion, by the way. Uh, but as people were retiring who had been there for 50 and 60 years, it was a very paternalistic company. Because in Brooklyn, they owned two square blocks of eight-story buildings. And the linotype was the dominant machine for setting type around the world.
0: They shipped them everywhere. I first saw them in Central Africa, where they were so valued, and we might touch on this, because they delivered justified type. The lines were square, the pages were square. They weren't loose at one end. And tremendous effort went into justifying it, right? Absolutely. And and by the way, that's based on one device called the space band,
1: which is a triangular piece of metal that when you push up on it, it spreads the, the space between the words to push the lines to the left and right hand margins. That's what we call justification. You also need hyphenation because sometimes the word breaks at the end of the line and someone has to decide where that hyphen goes. So the operator was not only just a keyboarder, they also had to make English decisions. And as you know, hyphenation in America was different than hyphenation in Great Britain.
0: Uh, absolutely. But uh, the justification was pursued. Finally, there was another way of doing it, but it was very cumbersome. That was using a Selectric typewriter. When I started a newsletter called the Energy Daily in Washington in 1973, it was said I wanted justified type. It came out of the newspaper because I couldn't imagine not having the type justified. I think I was wrong, but I couldn't. So a very skilled typist set this and then wrote the same line again to get it squared off and saw where to put the spacing in from the first line. He Did it very fast, it was amazing. And then we went to, and you know about this, we went from hot type to compugraphic machines, to cold type, but not to computer type. There was this interim state, big blue boxes were used, yes, <laughs> with a keyboard on them and a lot of cursing as we wondered where we were going in this brave new world. There was an intermediate step. In uh,
1: 1928, Frank Gannett had a small chain of newspapers in upstate New York. And he said, you know, my problem is the wire service comes in and it um, produces a printout, and each of my newspapers has to take that same copy, edit it, and have it keyboarded. So the same story is being recorded, typed, typeset um, in several different places. Why can't I have the machine produce a tape of some sort that could run my linotype machines like monotype does? That was another machine. And so he hires an inventor who does it, creates the machine, but the unions were so strong they would not allow it to be used. It was called teletypesetter. And so you could take the tape from the teletype machine Or, you could have someone sit at a keyboard with a big pointer on it, and as you hit the keys, it would move the increment the width of the character. And when you got to the end zone, there was a big red mark, and you had to decide if there would be a hyphen or no hyphen. And then when it went to the linotype machine, the space bands would take care of the justification. That paper tape, after World War II, the newspapers were in dire straits, and so they needed automation, and so they adapted all that technology. So, when phototypesetting came along, Compugraphic invented phototypesetting machines that could take that very paper tape, and instead of running your linotype, they would run a phototypesetting machine. And that opened up all kinds of new markets. But
0: the, 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 the paper tape played a role in the transfer uh, of linotype machines out the door, basically. In the Washington Post, well, last year I worked in the composing room as an editor, In the Washington Post was 1973 and we were beginning to drive our linotypes with typeset computer tape Uh, and the linotypes suddenly there was no person sitting at it somebody watching and but watching several machines and they were clanking away just as though there was an opera suddenly they had become ghost machines yes and next thing I went down to uh, see a newspaper in Texas in San Antonio and uh, they were doing everything with tape. The whole b- composing room was now driven by this paper tape, uh, the kind of thing that you saw in in, 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 uh, in telegraph offices or cable offices, uh, and that was the beginning of the end and then, or oh, the end of the linotype. And of the hugely skilled craftsmen who worked uh, on them. we revered great, printers, great compositors, and I did this in London, I did it in Africa. I worked for many years with these, as a journalist, uh, the great skills that some of them had and basically uh, the best were superb and the worst were like in anything else less so. Uh, But the best could do amazing things and we edited physically like, uh, you see where it says meanwhile, Uh, can we cut that line and then just pick it up where there's the next uh, capital letter, it'll read. We could read back, um, the editors could read Mm. backwards on the type, Uh, or you would turn a comma into a period. by just cutting it slightly. He would take a knife and he'd (laughs) click it like that, and then we'd throw the rest of it away, because suddenly it had become, and then of course there was the 30 dash at the end of every story. That's right. What was the 30-dash?
1: Well, the, the, there was a whole system of numbers that were shorthand for certain words, and 30 meant the end. And so when the teletype machines would print out their yellow paper, they would put a 30 at the end, meaning this is the end of the transmission. Well, there was a very famous typeface called Gaudi 30. It was his last typeface, so they called it 30 because that meant
0: the end. Uh, there was, uh, several newspapers have put 30 on the front page when they folded. Uh, and the, the National Press Club in Washington put on little obituaries a whole section, which was 30, Till they realized the new intake of members had no idea what 30 meant. By but- the way, the advent of paper
1: tape helped a lot of women enter the printing industry, because as you know, most linotype operators were male. Um, and as we got, went to keyboards and terminals and electronic devices, now we saw the influx of, of women coming into the printing industry
0: Uh, which I think improved the industry. Uh, That's right, there were not many women, and oddly some of the women who we had at the big newspapers I worked on uh, in America were uh, were handicapped because there was a major program to assist the mutes and people who had other related problems, who were very good printers, they were government-sponsored, then they spoke sign to each other, and some editors learned sign to communicate with them, but there were more of these special case printers who were women than there were the general issue of printers. There were very few women. In fact, I didn't know any major printers who were women, except if they were in this uh, special program for mutes. What happened to most of the printers? Were they, they weren't qualified to do anything else?
1: Well, that was the big major strikes around America. The big newspaper strike in New York City uh, was the last big strike. And that was because of automation. There's a wonderful book by Carl Schlesinger called Union Printers and Controlled Automation. And he talks about that strike because the unions were worried that with all this automation coming in, all their jobs would literally go away. And so the the settlement of that strike was that every person in the union at that moment would have a job for life. And it was only a few months ago that the last person under that contract at the New York Times retired. Amazing. Which was interesting. Uh, So that repeated itself across America until the point when automation then essentially went from the writer to the editor
0: uh, to makeup, all electronically. You mentioned, Frank, there weren't many women. There also weren't very many minorities. Absolutely. I worked very hard to get minorities into the unions of the Washington Post. But it was already, the end was in sight, so we were reluctant to take new apprentices. I think we succeeded in one, and there were three or four printers out of a very large complement of printers. It had been very much a white, preserve printing, uh, and I'm sure the unions played a role in that. I never heard it discussed, but we had, at the Post, we had more black reporters than we had black printers, and that was true, actually, in Baltimore as well, and I can't remember New York. Um, but it, it is interesting that these craft jobs were so protected and so racially uh, 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 defended. And as
1: you know, the unions carved out their niches. So you had the printers who were the typesetting people. You had the stereotypers who made the plates. You had the pressmen who printed it. Uh, you, you had the mailers who mailed it. You had the teamsters who drove the trucks for them. So. I don't think there was any, oh, and then the Newspaper Guild for the editorial people, so there was no part of the newspaper
0: that wasn't unionized in some way. Um, that's right, and we worked amazingly well together, unless there was a particular issue of, fri- of, of friction. I always thought the newspapers were like hospitals. They were horizontal. There was nobody in charge. You know, at, at 11 o'clock at night when you're putting out an edition of a newspaper, uh, there's nobody in charge there's nobody you know Uh, you are in charge if you're the makeup editor but everybody you deal with in some way thinks they are responsible for that newspaper the stereotyper the cut maker the the engraver the printer and the pressman great machines they must be in charge and the mailers who must get the stacks of newspapers into the van Uh, tell us about the museum Where is it? How do people come here? How can they support it? How can they enjoy a walk down memory lane, a very important lane of memory?
1: This is the Museum of Printing. We're in Haverhill. By the way, it's spelled Haverhill, but pronounced Haverhill. This is New England, uh, Haverhill, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. Uh, we're one of three museums of printing left in America. We, our, our goal is to preserve any form of communication So we have all the typesetting machines, presses, typewriters, computers, the only collection of type machines in the world. We have an 8,000-volume library. Uh, We document everything we do. I've written 65 books all about printing technology of some sort. And so we're normally open only on Saturdays, but we will open during the week for anyone who wants to make an appointment.
0: And there's nobody walking around here at the moment because this is not a Saturday. That is and correct. Kindly open for us. Frank, thank you for do- joining us. That's our walk down memory lane. I love these machines. They were the background of my life for decades. I love the smell of them, the sound of them. And now, just looking at them is a joy. They made a huge difference in the literacy of the nation, a huge difference in the wisdom of the nation. And they played a big part in our politics and the formulation of attitudes. That work has now moved on largely into the electronic era. I'm sad to see that happen, but it is, of course, in progress. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.